Hello, I'm Elena DelVal, and this is the HispanicNPR.com podcast. My guest today is Randy Furson, who is author of How to Get the Right Diagnosis, 16 Tips for Navigating the Medical System. We will discuss the questions to ask your doctor if you don't want to die. Randy is CEO of Global Lytica, LLC. He's also president of Herson Associates, LLC, and a founding director of the nonprofit Forum Foundation for Analytics Excellence. He teaches advanced analytic techniques and critical thinking skills to analysts in most of the 17 United States intelligence community agencies, in 10 of the Fortune 100 companies, and in the United Kingdom, Italy, Norway, Denmark, Romania, Australia, Saudi Arabia, and Hong Kong. He has authored, co-authored, or edited 11 books. He is best known for two books, Most Analysts Encounter in Their Training, Structured Analytic Techniques for Intelligence Analysis, and Critical Thinking for Strategic Intelligence. Randy was a career CIA intelligence analyst and manager, last serving as National Intelligence Officer, or NIO, for Latin America. He's a recipient of the 2000 Distinguished Intelligence Medal for his service as a National Intelligence Officer and the CIA's Distinguished Career Intelligence Medal, also in 2000. Randy, welcome. It's great to be on the show. What do we mean the right diagnosis? That sounds like it's a pretty straightforward concept. You go to the doctor or you go to get your blood tested and they tell you what's wrong with you. How difficult is it to get the right diagnosis? Well, what I have encountered over the years was that most doctors will come up with an immediate diagnosis. There's a good chance they're right and not take the time to consider the fact that there be two or three possible explanations for what's wrong with you. So they'll give you what is the easiest way to deal with the problem, and then you go off, take the medicine, and if it fixes you, they've solved the problem and everybody's happy. But if that doesn't work, then you have to come back and they'll try something else, and you go through this serial process, and you can realize it may take you several months before you actually get to the right diagnosis. So one of the things that I've focused on in my own personal experience, was trying to find ways and using techniques to encourage the doctors to focus on several possibilities and then and then help them get to the right diagnosis by trying to be their partner and working their way and your way through the, the whole issue. Do you happen to have any statistics on how often we get the right diagnosis, or if we flip that around the other way, how often patients don't get the right diagnosis? Is there anybody tracking that? Well, there was a study that was done, which I've cited in my book in the, at the beginning, that mentioned that around 12 million misdiagnoses occur every year. It's a very, uh, very frequent occurrence. And what I think the one way to think about this and I created a little group saying there's around 5% of the population that probably does not get the right diagnosis. And almost more than half of the time, your body will cure itself. I had an issue with a really bad shoulder. I went to the, the orthopedist, and I said, what am I doing? He looked at it, and he says, well, it's inflamed. Take some aspirin and wait a couple of days and see if it goes away. 
In a couple of days, it went away totally. I thought I had a rotator cup that had to be surgically well dealt with, and it turned out, no, it was just a simple inflammation. My body cured itself. In most other cases, you can try one or two treatments for whatever is ailing you, and those will solve the problem. So if you look at like a, a bell curve, a standard deviation, if you do two standard deviations, that's 95% of the population that you either self-cure or one or two cures solve your problem. The problem is the, I call it the 5% club that have more complicated issues where they might have two things going wrong with them. And that needs a lot more of the doctor's attention. And the difficulty there is that it's fairly pronounced as a phenomenon. Doctors are challenged to find the time to deal with it. And in fact, they're not incentivized to spend the time to deal with getting you the right diagnosis. And what was the source of the data that you shared, the 12 million misdiagnoses uh, every year? I'd have to look it up in my book really quickly. Uh, Let me go ahead and give it to you later. I'll find it as we go along. So we're looking at about 5% of the population who is not getting the right diagnosis and perhaps a lot more depending on how this information is being tracked and whether people realize that they didn't get the right diagnosis, right? Right. And actually, I just found the source. It was a 2015 study by the Institute of Medicine, which is an arm of the National Academy of Sciences. And the year, do you remember? Uh, 2015 is when they issued the report. Okay, so that's five years ago, and right. that was per year. So five times 12 in the time between when they reported that and now, imagine the number of people who have been misdiagnosed. That's staggering. Yes, and it's actually it is staggering, and the health profession and the insurance industry can kind of live with that because the one way to look at it, if you're dealing with that number, it's still a percentage that's tolerable. Uh, if you have 5% of the population that's not really getting treated in the proper way, then you also have 95% of the population that you can deal with very easily. So if you're getting a 95% success rate, let's say, from the insurance company's perspective, you know, you're making the profit you need to make and you don't really have to worry about the noise of the other 5%. Well, and the question that comes to my mind is, is 95% really getting the right diagnosis? Because if what you said earlier is true, that your body naturally heals itself if you leave it alone, then it's possible that 95% is not really a right diagnosis. It's just the body healed itself in many of those cases. Does that sound right? You're absolutely correct. It would turn out that only half of those people are actually getting a diagnosis that is correct. And and they're also very common things, that you have a common cold, you have the flu, and those are pretty easy to diagnose. And all of that is in that same statistic. In your case, it took a very long time between the moment that you felt something was wrong and you went to your primary physician, your family physician, the person that you saw on a regular basis, and you said, eh, not feeling so good. And the time that you actually were treated for your condition. Tell us a little bit about that, if you would. So actually, my problem was that I was, I'm in a running club called the Hash House Harriers. It's around the world as a club. 
and we you meet once a week and you do a five mile run. And I was doing this. I've been doing that since 1983, and I have over a thousand runs underneath my belt. And at some point, uh, many years ago, five years, eight years ago now, I started to have trouble running, and my chest would get sore, my lungs would get sore, and I was not able to keep running at the same pace that I always ran. So I went on to the doctor, and they said, "Well, let's go check out your heart. Let's check out your lungs." So I went and I did a series of tests. I was found initially that I didn't have a heart problem. Then I went to the pulmonologist. I actually went through a series of 12 doctors, three of which had actually uh, done work and had had the United States president as their patient. And I also did six different specialists in families of medicine that looked at me, and nobody could come up with a diagnosis for why I was having such difficulty uh, breathing when I was running, and I was running more than two or three miles. And as this was going on over a five-year period, the problem kept getting worse and worse. I was slowly deteriorating in my ability to run and to maintain a pace when I was running. So it what came to a point where I was overseas teaching a class in Barcelona, and there was a lot of hills there. And I was having trouble going up and down the hills with my wife. I came back to the United States, and I was going to a meeting at the State Department, and I was having trouble walking down the city street, and I had to stop and catch my breath. I said, this is too much. So I went and saw my family physician. She looked at me, and she says, you need to go to the emergency room. There's something seriously wrong with you. And I said, well, I've got two more appointments this afternoon, but I'll go later on tonight and maybe 4 o'clock, she said, no, you're going right now. And so I went over to the emergency room, and they gave me a EKG, and they did a couple other things, and they said, you need to, you know, there's nothing wrong with you, go home, and maybe run less. And so then they discharged me. I said, I'm not leaving until I get some kind of a diagnosis. And then they did a couple more things and did some blood tests, and then they said, okay, you're fine, go home. And I said, no, I, what assumptions are you making about my case? Uh, what hypotheses are you considering? Because I do analysis, I'm an intelligence analyst. And they, then I finally pulled out a piece of paper that said, this is what I have been going through over five years. It was two pages. The, the ER doctor looked at it and he said, hmm. And then I asked him, I think the, the winning question was, if I die in two weeks, what are you going to tell my wife I died of? And he couldn't answer the question. So he said, okay, we'll let you in here and we're going to do some more serious diagnostics. So I went in that day, and I had a catheterization, and then after going through the catheterization, they said, well, we have a problem here. Uh, your arteries are more than 70, 80, and 90% clogged, uh, and the next day they put me in for a quadruple heart bypass, which solved the problem, and I was up and running. Twelve days later, I attended a conference in Toronto, and delivered three papers on political science topics. When you first arrived at the ER, what they told you was, no, there's nothing wrong with you. What you should do is run less? Yeah, that was generally a good solution for everybody. If you have a problem and avoid it, just don't do the exercise. Wow, that is just amazing. Was this the same doctor that on the third try you finally got to listen to you, or was it someone else? No, this was a this was a different doctor. 
uh, I do give the doctor credit because after they did the operation, they came out to see my wife. Actually, when they did the first catheterization and they realized that I had serious heart problems, he said, I, I need to apologize for the cardiac profession, that we totally missed this. We should not have missed it. And your husband's gone through five years of uh, process that it was totally unnecessary. We should have caught it right away. So why did you write the book? I wrote the book because, independent of my, my own story, is that I had five years to go into waiting rooms and watch doctors and go through procedures and see how the medical system was working. And what I found was very frustrating on my part and upon a lot of my friends that the system just doesn't work. The doctors are given very little time to talk to you. They have to process people very quickly. You have kind of a very manufacturing-type process. The insurance companies will not – I kept looking for, can we get a test for – can you bill people to sit down and think about my problem and diagnose me? And the answer was no, that a doctor can't bill for thinking because there's no metric that they can use to prove that he was actually thinking. So there is no code that you can put on a chart. But you can say, we're going to give you this test, or I'm going to give you this appointment, or we're going to you know, give you this medication, or we're going to do whatever. Those things are billable. So the insurance company is heavily uh, disincentivizing doctors to spend time with their patients because they can't charge for it. And they basically have to absorb the cost of talking to you out of pocket. They can't uh, bill that. What would you say, can you estimate, or maybe you've already done this, how much of your time did this five-year process take if you aggregate all of the hours that you spent collating information, understanding the process, seeing these 12 doctors and six specialists and visiting the ER, etc.? Do you have any idea how many hours well, I, don't, I don't have statistics on it, but I would, my would, and estimate that it's somewhere between five and ten percent of my time, which you could also then define as just pure lost productivity. Not to mention the risk that if you had been in a different place at a different time, if you had been on an airplane, if you had been out of town, you may not have arrived at an ER that could assist you or you may not have been within reach of physicians who could take care of you. Is that right? Exactly. In fact, I spent around a third of my time overseas uh, teaching and consulting on analytical processes and analytical techniques. And I would have been, I was at fairly serious risk that something could have happened uh, when I was overseas. I also carry around a 50 pound suitcase filled with books and teaching materials so I get a lot of exercise, but I put a, I was putting a pretty heavy stress on the heart, carrying those suitcases up and down hills, etc. Part of your title is 16 Tips for Navigating the Medical System. So what are those 16 tips? Well, what I've talked in, about in the book, they're, I've broken into three different groups. Uh, I teach analytical techniques, and I was thinking as I was going through this experience, that there are several very simple techniques that people use in the intelligence profession that anybody could use, and I can go over them in a minute. The second group is looking at things that 
you should anticipate obstacles that you will confront that I saw and I think other people need to be aware of so they're not surprised. And then lastly, which is kind of the fun part, uh, there are kind of tips for building a partnership with your doctor, things you can do that's going to make your journey a lot more successful. So I kind of broke it into those three groups. What would you say, after so much reflection and the amount of time that it's taken you aside from getting to the diagnosis and recovery, but all of the time that you have poured into the book process, what is your big takeaway? What is it that you have learned along the way? Because this is also something I assume that you are taking away for your own health and that of your loved ones. Well, I think the biggest takeaway in this whole process was the importance of building a partnership with your doctor, uh, which means really connecting with them. The wrong way to approach this is to uh, treat your doctor like a, a specialist who will solve your problem. He's in charge. He figures it out, and you just have to be there and find out what the solutions are. What really is going to work much more effectively is to engage with him and help him do the diagnosis. And more importantly, what I think is get the doctor to pay attention to you. If he sees 30 people on that one day, you want him or her to go back and tell their spouse or their partner that, yeah, I had a really interesting person come in today, and it's really blah, et cetera, et cetera. So if you can get them to pay attention to you and you can help them do their job. The one big takeaway I got from doctors was that what they really don't like is when a patient walks into their office and says, this is what I have, doc, uh, give me something to fix it. And they get on the Internet and do their own diagnosis. Doctors say, that's our job. We are supposed to figure out what's going on. We have been to school for 12 years. This is our job is to figure out what's going on. But your job is to give us your symptoms. We need to know what you're experiencing. And the better you can do that, the easier our job is. So if you can keep a log of what you've been uh, experiencing, if you can give us dates and times, or if you can uh, monitor yourself or take your blood pressure and keep a log of that. Uh, we put in the book, which one of the things I liked the most, was a list of how what words can I use to explain and describe my pain. And there are around 20, 30 different words that popped up as we put the list together. And one of the big issues that I came up with was, well, I have aches and I have pains, and I think they're different. And I keep asking doctors, do you believe that an ache is different than a pain? Half of them say, you're absolutely right, and the other half say, not at all. So the, 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 uh, we don't really know which way to go. But if you have words and you can describe the kind of pain you have, uh, that's really important, whether it's stabbing, dull, et cetera. Uh, is it spreading? Is it migrating? Uh, what is happening? You can use those terminology. That's extremely helpful for the doctor uh, for you to come in and give him a really good sense of what's going on. And actually what I did with a lot of doctors was to actually keep logs and, and develop data, and I would just put it on an Excel spreadsheet and send it in to him once a week. And that would make a – then we would work together and modify things to fit, try to figure out what was going on. But despite all of this effort and data gathering – Nobody was able to figure out what you had until 
the very end. Did it really help? Well, the doctors, well, the, the doctors who I found most helpful to work with, I mean, for example, if I take like, if they thought it was asthma, as I was maintaining records of running and then I'd have to stop, how far could I run before I had to stop? If I used an inhaler, what, how did, I, then I would use a, the, uh, the, the breathing tube and I would then record how much my lung capacity was. So I take that with me when I jogged and then we could, document how things were going and how the treatments were affecting me. What it did was that they looked at my results when I would use the breathing tube after I stopped running and I did a big puff of my inhaler, and they say, you should get a 30, 40, 50% improvement, and you're getting 2%. Something tells me that your problem's not asthma. Inhalers aren't helping you at all, and we can eliminate that as a possible diagnosis, and we'll move on to something else and move on to another doctor and try to find another explanation for what's wrong with you. So in some cases, doing that allowed them to give a much more precise diagnosis, and particularly since they, you know, you're doing it on your own time, then it made it easier on the doctors because they didn't, that was work that could be done, and they could get the data that they needed, and they didn't have to worry about not being able to bill for doing diagnosis. But along the way, you ended up taking medications that you didn't need and as all medications that had potential side effects that could have caused you damage to your heart or other organs, right? Correct. And, in fact, that's one of my greatest frustrations is that I went through, I think, over a dozen different asthma medications, and they kept trying a new one. And this is where I really got the idea of writing the book is that they would say, well, you're having trouble breathing. So we're going to give you this asthma medication. And then we try that for a month. And you say, oh, that's not working. And I would also have some serious side effects with some of them, which were very uncomfortable. So then they said, well, let's just try a new one. We actually got to the point that they said, we're going to try an experimental FDA-approved drug uh, to see if we can deal with this. And the, generally what I saw was that the instincts of the profession were just to keep trying something iteratively until something worked. And they didn't say and stop and say, well, I need to diagnose what's really causing the problem. And that's where I, I finally kind of gave up in my own brain saying the medical system is just not meeting my needs. They're not focusing on the diagnosis. They're simply just doing treatments because that's how they maximize uh, profit in the system. And by trying something, what they were trying was to give you medications they were giving you occasional diagnostic tests, but mainly from what I recall and from what you're describing, they were just giving you more drugs. Is that right? That's correct. They just keep try this, try that, and then we'll then try another doctor, uh, and et cetera, et cetera. So you kept going through a basically a treatment regime, and it was very hard to get someone to do a serious diagnosis. And the biggest problem is that our medical system is so specialized uh, I was actually at the head of an allergy and asthma clinic at a world-renowned hospital, and I had the head of that asthma clinic uh, evaluating me for my condition, and he went through all the tests, and he, he was the one who discharged me as a patient saying, you cannot have asthma, and you, doesn't, and you may have allergies, but I don't think so. And... And, and I said, well, that's okay. That's actually good news that you've eliminated something. So what do I do now? And he says, well, that's not my job. 
uh, and this was a world-renowned hospital, and he said, I'm a specialist on asthma and allergies, and I don't do anything else. So go back to your primary care and, and figure out where you want to go next. But our hospital, our huge medical complex, all I do is allergy and asthma. I don't do anything else. And I don't recommend anyone else for any other any other specialties because that's outside. I could be legally liable if I do something. And that happened to me two or three times where the doctors would only deal within their own little sphere of what they did. And they would never look at the whole person, the whole being. And it was very, very frustrating because of that. Except for your GP. Presumably she was looking at your whole system. Right. And she was, and she kept trying to figure out what can we do next. Uh, one thing she did, which was interesting, is that she uh, applied with me to the National Institute of Health program for undiagnosed diseases. And I filled out a, a long form describing exactly all my treatments were. This is like three or four years into the sojourn. And we submitted it to NIH and said, can I get into this program? And what they do there is they get like 200 doctors, review a case, and then they all collaborate on what could be going on here, what is being missed, what have we not thought of, and how do we diagnose it? And the irony is that when I put the submission in, uh, we were waiting to get accepted into the program because she had a previous patient who did that and was very successful. Uh, then I had my incident at the hospital. I had my surgery, and I got a letter four days after my surgery saying that I'd been rejected for the program because my condition wasn't interesting enough. That's really interesting. I had never even heard of that program and didn't know that it existed. But if but someone's out there, I highly recommend it as a program, even though they rejected me. Because uh, if you have a very complex situation, what it tries to do is heal a very major problem in the medical system, which is what I put in the book, was that doctors don't like to talk to each other. They want to do their thing, work in their specialty, and when you need collaboration or you need a well-being kind of an approach or a wellness approach, it's almost impossible to pull that off. I always remembered when I was in the ICU after my surgery, and then I was interviewing the nurses about my techniques and, and analysis and how they use them and what they do, and they said what they almost had to do in many cases was to arrange to have the three different specialists come down to your room at the same time but not let them know that. And then when the specialist got into the room to see you, they would block, stand by the door and not let them out. And then that would force the doctors to start talking to each other and try to deal with your problem. But it was a kind of a graphic example of what you have to do. If, and generally, it also is a graphic example of how great nurses are and how smart they are for trying to corral a bunch of doctors to force them to talk to each other because it's generally not their normal instinct. It, this description that you're sharing about trying to get doctors to take an interest in you and in a bigger picture way, this particular group of doctors to look at quote-unquote interesting cases, it makes me think of that uh, television show called House. Yes. And his and whole thing was to figure out what the right diagnosis was, right? In fact, I've, we, we have a joke in my company where we teach analytical techniques. One of the techniques we teach is called analysis of competing hypotheses, which in the medical profession also goes by the name of differential diagnosis. And what we do is we say, 
there's number one, we start off by saying, what are all the things that could be wrong? And we make a list. And those are alternative hypotheses for what's making you sick or causing your condition. Then you look at the, the testing data and you say, if you have that illness, or if that's the explanation that's correct, what is the data that we're seeing? Is there data that's not consistent with it? And if you have a test result that you shouldn't see if you have that problem that's inconsistent, then you can say, well, it's not that. It must be something else. So what you do is you just do, they call it abduction, where you take five hypotheses and then you see which ones you can eliminate until the last person standing or the last hypothesis standing is the correct diagnosis. That's the procedure that House used in that show. And what I found, we always joke that we should, we built software that, that does this, and we should give them the software, and they could then go through that process that you see on the TV screen, and they could solve the case twice as fast. But then they have a problem. How do they fill the next 20 minutes of TV time? Because they really want to stretch it out and, and get you, you know, to figure it out in the last 10 minutes when you could probably get to it in the first 20 minutes. So anyway, it's a joke that we've always had that House is a perfect example of using a good, solid analytical technique. What's incorrect about House is that almost never are you going to find doctors with the luxury of having some interns and residents and everyone else sitting around and brainstorming about a problem. Is that it's way too expensive and it's not really tolerated by the insurance companies. They don't want to see that much talent being stuck in one place working on one condition and they were doing just pure diagnosis and that's uh, that's too expensive for our current system of medicine that we have. It's a little bit like investigative journalism in a hospital setting, right? Yes, it's exactly. It's very much the same thing. With investigative and journalism, you're trying to get the data to determine what is the best explanation for what happened and how do you fit all the pieces of the puzzle together. But House did say that the problem was people. He used to say that, Patients lied, and yeah. doctors lied. And what we're seeing based on your analysis here is people is the flaw here, whether intentionally or unintentionally, because they're not dedicating the amount of effort or even being mindful in their diagnoses, right? Yeah, and there's really there's two kinds of lying. If you're trying to protect your reputation or if you're basically just too busy to think it through, and a lot of the lying, I think, is probably not intentional. It's just that they don't focus and ask themselves good questions. There's one of the stories in the book that I, is along those lines was a, a group of uh, basketball players in a, in a girls' school. One of the women was having trouble breathing when she was on the court. And she went to, and some of her friends had the same problem. They'd gone to the doctor, and the doctor had given them an inhaler and said, you're probably just having asthma-type problems. She went to the doctor, and the doctor said, well, do you play any other sports? And they, uh, she said, yeah, I'm also on the swimming team. And he says, well, let's try. Do you have a problem when you're swimming? And she said, no, I don't. It's just when I play basketball. So he said, they're telling that her friends that they had exercise-induced asthma, and so they gave them, immediately gave them an inhaler and said, Try this one and see if it works. And if that didn't work, then they gave them a, a second one. So this doctor said, why don't you just run up five flights of steps and run back down and tell me if you exercise induced asthma, if you're having trouble breathing. And she did that, and she had no problem at all when she came back down. 
and she was in pretty good shape too. And so the doctor says, well, this can't be exercise-induced asthma. We just tested that. It's totally inconsistent. I can eliminate that hypothesis. I think what you're dealing with is performance anxiety. And it's when you're doing basketball, because you're a little bit more accomplished as a swimmer than as a basketball player. So he gave her a couple exercises to focus her attention before she went on the court, and it solved the problem. It was performance anxiety, and they got the right diagnosis. But I tell the story in, in, in the sense that a lot of doctors are basically lying to their patients saying this must be exercise-induced asthma. And the fact is, is that they weren't trying to do harm. They were just too busy, and that seemed to be a really simple solution that first came to their mind, and they didn't think seriously about what else it could have been. If the theory that on average doctors spend less than 15 minutes a year with any given patient is true. And given that we have a shortage of doctors nationwide and especially in rural areas, that sounds like it might be true for a lot of people. Some people might not even get 15 minutes with a doctor a year. How could we possibly expect a doctor to dedicate that kind of attention that you're describing in that story or even in the book, someone who is willing to answer questions, even if you bring the questions with you within the time period scheduled, let's say 15 minutes, for an annual or every two or three year visit test, you wouldn't possibly have enough time. Correct. Let me maybe answer that on two levels. On the first level, what a big theme of the book is to make it really obvious that you need to optimize how the nurse in particular and the doctor use their time. So if you come in the door with a list of questions that you need to ask, you can give him a copy of the list, and he can process that a lot quicker. You should always have a list of your medications that you can give to the nurse so that you don't have to go through this interview process. Uh, so what you need to do is to come prepared so that you can make the time as efficient as possible. And uh, I, we also, I also say you should always walk into the doctor's office with a big fat folder in your hand, uh, hopefully filled with your past history and other tests and other things you've done. But even if not, you need to be taking some notes when you're talking to the doctor. You should be amazed how fast you'll forget what he said when he tells you what you're supposed to do. And you also want to signal to the doctor that you are taking personal responsibility for managing your problem. It's not only his problem or her problem. It's you think it's a, a partnership and you're trying to work it together. But on, on a higher level, a higher scale, the doctors really are often and almost always limited to like 15 minutes to have a, a discussion with you and then they move on to the next patient. That being the case, it's really the system is wrong, it has to be fixed. The system is based on a profit, pure profit motive, and the insurance companies you know, have made it twice as expensive as the medical systems in almost any other part of the world, and there's huge amounts of inefficiency that you could pull out of the system, and you want to re-incentivize the system so that you try to keep people healthy instead of trying to deal with their illnesses. So the incentives, uh, there are... There, uh, I'm trying to remember. Some of the doctors, you just pay a flat fee for a year, and their job then becomes to never see you because you're extremely healthy, and then they make a lot of money. So you flip the incentive system, if you have a concierge system, they call it, 
and you just say, I will pay this for my health care, and the doctor will try to keep me as healthy as possible, and I don't have to visit him or her because they've done their job. And that's not the system we have today. It's the opposite, where the more tests that you need, whether they're useful or not useful, they'll get justified or they won't get justified, but you're doing, you're moving through a testing regime instead of incentivizing people. One just quick story that got my attention is that was one of the doctors I went to was an ENT doctor, and they were saying, well, maybe your larynx is too constricted, so you need to check out with him. So I went in to see him, and I was telling him I was writing this book, and he said, well, let's, let's sit down and talk about that. That's fascinating. And I went over some of my principles, and he said, I like that, I like that. And I finally said, well, how can you spend this much time with me? And he says, well, you know, I really care about my patients, and I want to do that. I walked out of his uh, office, and I looked at, and I noticed that there were two reception desks. He had his ENT receptionist, which I went to, but over on the other side of the room, there was a whole other reception desk, and it was his plastic surgery desk. And what he had done in order to have time with his patients is that he set up a side plastic Botox surgery uh, profession, and he used the money from that to allow him to then spend more time with his patients. I noticed that there are no names in the book. Is that right? Correct. And there's no names of facilities no names of hospitals, and no names of individuals. Uh, all of these stories, I had 18 stories that I wove into the book, some of which are pretty telling. Actually, when I edited the book, I actually cried three times reading my own stories for the stories that people had given me. Uh, I used, I let whoever donated a story to put in the book to tell me what name they wanted me to use for that story. I can, I can document all of them as legitimate stories. None of them were made up. Uh, but my philosophy was that I'm not really mad at doctors because they're in a horrible situation based upon what the system does to them. I did everything I could to celebrate nurses who get paid much less and do phenomenally good work and really are focusing purely almost on the patient and how to make that work. And the medical facilities face the same pressure from the insurance industry, and they're trying to, to, to maximize their ability to provide care and still maintain profit. So when I finished, it was, it was tempted to say horrible mistakes were made in misdiagnosing me, and I could go off and sue people. I, could, I told a story in the book of how I was left on the eighth floor of a hospital in downtown New York for over two or three hours, I almost bled out, and they just totally forgot me, and they had no idea I was there. I had gone in for a kidney stone, and they went to the MRI, and then I got lost. And there was nobody on that floor of the hospital, and I was I almost died because of a kidney stone. So the question is, are you going to sue the hospital for doing this to you? And my view was, why? no. It was a close call, but I said, the hospitals are pretty stressed themselves. And a lot of what's going on is a function of a system that's broken. I would like to see a lot more attention being paid to how do you put together a healthcare system that works as opposed to the one that we have, we now live in today. Well, some people might argue that if what drives, if what motivates all of these people is money, then a lawsuit would be a motivator. A little bit the way that perhaps some companies decide to leave out a particular fix, say, in a vehicle, 
and they just calculate how many lives it's going to cost them and how much money that's going to represent, and they choose that course because it's cheaper than the actual fix. What would you say to that? Well, I guess maybe part of the answer to that is that I was a civil servant all my life. I spent all my time trying to make things work better, and I kind of overreact to a litigious will sue you every time something goes wrong. I would rather spend my energy trying to make things go right than spend, again, a tremendous amount of energy trying to, to move a lawsuit forward. Uh, I think probably in this case, a more effective mechanism would be to mobilize the voting population in terms of who is supporting what. If you have someone who understands and focuses on these kinds of issues, then I would get behind them and make sure that they're the kind of people who get elected and they can then focus their energy on making the system work. And if they're focused on what the patients need as opposed to what the insurance companies want, uh, we should have a better world. And that would probably be more effective than trying to generate a lot of lawsuits. Have you come across any of these uh, unicorn type of uh, candidates that really care about the process that, that you're describing? Well, I think you, I think it is not that difficult to find them. Uh, actually, we have a polarized society, but a lot of the candidates running local races will have health care as one of their primary issues. And I think if you look carefully at what they're saying and, and understand, and I think ask them very hard questions about, well, how do you then deal with the insurance companies if you're trying to do this? How do you actually, if you've got a great vision, how do you actually mobilize that? How do you implement it in a way that it can be done? I think we had several uh, pretty good discussions when we were doing the primary debates, although that was actually not the primary debates, but the town hall meetings, where you had some very educated discussions of what is needed to fix the current medical system. And I would really encourage people to make that a primary issue when they're looking at candidates in November and listening to what the candidates are proposing as we go through the elections. You talked about being in charge of your own health care and finding an advocate in your doctor and nurse and the medical staff in general. Do you find it easy to get for example, copies of your medical records and copies of your diagnostic tools, so say they took an X-ray or an EKG or an MRI, getting them to give you copies of those documents and giving you copies of the notes that they took in their offices. Was that automatic? Was that easily done? Did you have to insist? What was that process like? I think that process has evolved substantially, and I think positively, over the last five or so years, where most of the doctors that I'm now engaging with uh, will establish a patient portal. And they'll then you go online, you log in, and then you can actually communicate directly with the doctor, and they will post uh, the results of your test on the portal. And then you can go in and you can read the report that your doctor got, saying this is what you have. So that allows you to be totally informed, and as I've seen it working very well. The downside for me is that there are various things. I'm up there in age, so there are different doctors I see for different things, and getting those documents then to be shared from one doctor's office to another becomes problematic. 
And I, I learned the hard way in several cases that you have to follow up and make sure that when one doctor says he'll send something to another doctor, that it actually gets there and not assume that that's the case. So the, and then it would be nice if there was a universal portal and everybody could, all your doctors, and you didn't have to juggle four different portals uh, for trying to get access to your, your medical records and you make your, but you can make your appointments, see your medical results and, uh, and then, and even talk to your doctor on these portals. And I think that's a major positive advancement. And it also is helpful because it saves a tremendous amount of time for the doctors and the nurses and the receptionists because they can have that dialogue a lot more efficiently. There is a survey from 2017 on the CBS News website that says that in 2015, Half of U.S. doctors received payments from pharmaceutical and medical device industries. Half. Amounting to, in that year, $2.4 billion. Did you find, did you get the impression, because I imagine it would be difficult to know for sure, but did you get the impression that was the case with these 12 doctors in five years that you visited and the many drugs that they prescribed you, did you get the impression that there was a motivation that that played a role? Uh, For example, this study says that many of them are encouraged to prescribe pricey brand name drugs and devices based on another study. So they're receiving money from pharmaceutical companies and device makers. They're encouraged to prescribe these drugs. In your process, did you get that impression? To be honest, I didn't. Uh, I have a great pharmacist who was always doing what she could ever do to make sure that I go generic and I stayed away from the pricey stuff if I had a medication. Generally, what I saw was that serious thought was given to what medication do we prescribe and are we going to do that. I mentioned I did get prescribed a experimental drug that had to be injected into me to deal with asthma. And there it's, it's interesting that they took a long time. They t- had actually two different doctors had to weigh in before they decided to even try that because they were assuming that the problem had to be asthma-related somehow, and it wasn't. So they were at least being considerate in how they were dealing with that. And I pretty much, I think, I don't remember ever reacting to being told you need to take X medicine, that this is because they're just trying to push that medicine. I never had that that sense. There has been a lot of controversy lately and findings that generic medications are not effective, that they are not bioidentical to the name brand drugs, that many of these drugs or the vast majority of the drugs, I believe the last number, I recall was more than 90% of the drugs prescribed in the United States, certainly generic drugs and apparently some of the name brand drugs, are being manufactured in India and China, and the conditions are not in any way a copy or follow the guidelines that we have stateside. Did you have the impression that any of those generic drugs that you took uh, might have had those issues? Uh, no. I think that makes the case that if you're going to use generic drugs, you still, I mean, I would would 
argue that there would be a very serious problem if you're going to get mail-order drugs, because that's where it's very easy to do you in and give you a, a false product. If you get your drugs through your pharmacist, you're going to be somewhat more protected. And if you then partner with your pharmacist to say, I did some research about this drug and it's been manufactured in India, are we sure that it's effective? Maybe you can get the pharmacist to help you go check that out. And that's what they're there for. So I would, my response would be, if you're worried about that problem, and number one, you can do some of your own research to see where is this manufactured. And number two, if you have a reason to be concerned, then I would get your pharmacist to start doing some work and have him or her try to figure out if you're, if you have a problem or not and see if there are any studies. One of the important suggestions that you make in the book is that you develop a personal relationship with your doctor so that you become memorable so that he or she becomes your partner and your advocate if possible. And for many people who have difficulty accessing a doctor, that might be challenging. How important is it to do that, and how easy do you think it is for people who are listening to us and reading your book? Um, how realistic is that advice? Well, I think it's realistic if you are very conscious about the need to do that. I was really taken aback by one doctor who I was traveling with, and this is when I first started thinking about doing the book, and he said, you know, everybody, children, will take an apple to school for their teacher. Or you, you know, teachers, you know, people will have gifts or little things or Christmas presents or whatever. And he says, you know, in my profession, I've only had one person ever bring me an apple. Uh, I've only had another doctor said, I was really blown away when somebody sent me a birthday card. And I'll never forget that person. Uh, it doesn't take much just to make sure that you realize that the doctor is a person too. And what I find amazing is that the doctor is probably much more significant to your overall well-being than a teacher will be. And they should be getting a little bit more attention because we tend to take them for granted. And we see this just as a professional exchange. So if you personalize the interaction, it almost always works to your benefit. And there are little things like, well, where did you go to college? Or where is your daughter going to school? Or where's my, or what church do you belong to? Or you can find little things that would connect you. Or are you a runner? I'm a runner. Uh, or I like to, I'm a, I love motorcycles. If you're just kind of looking for something like that, when you make that connection, the connection will probably hold. And what you really want to do is to signal two things. One is you you want to be different. And in that sense, it's a competition. But more importantly is that you're open to what the doctor's thinking and you, are, you want to partner and do what you can to understand where he or she is coming from and then focus on what you can do to optimize their ability to help you. You talk about getting a second opinion. You got 12 opinions in five years. How much of a role did getting a second opinion play for you? Well, I did go through several allergists and asthma doctors, and it worked. And actually, but they were all, the problem was that once the cardiac specialist said it was not the heart, all the other doctors anchored on that and assumed that it could not be. 
And one of the, my greatest frustrations was that they didn't challenge the baseline assumption that the initial diagnosis was wrong. So, again, challenging assumptions was is a really critical technique to use. Uh, as you look at doctors, I since the operation, I've had a couple other minor, like I had a cataract surgery, and one doctor said, well, we're going to do both eyes at the same time, and and on and a couple other things. And I said, this is making me very uncomfortable. So I got a went out and found through my network somebody else to go to, and I just dropped that ophthalmologist immediately and picked up a new one who did everything right and I was much more comfortable with. I think we have a tendency to feel like we need to be loyal to our doctor or to a specialist that we're dealing with, and we don't want to make them unhappy. Almost every doctor that you talk to will not really argue against going to get a second opinion. They know that they're fallible. They know that they're making assumptions. They understand the kind of cognitive biases that they can fall prey to. And I haven't seen any doctor resist anybody or haven't heard any stories either that if I want to get a second opinion, they say, sure, <clears throat> you know, I can give you some recommendations or go off and do it, and then we'll go from there. If the doctor knows his stuff or her stuff, uh, they are not going to be threatened and they're not going to worry about that. If they're really insecure and they're afraid you're going to go see another doctor, then you probably should because that doctor isn't confident in what they can do. How did you find, other than your primary physician that you started out with, how did you find these doctors? Were it doctors who were recommending doctors? Did you go out and research them before you went to visit them and find out what kind of ratings they had, say, for example, online? on health grading websites or ask friends? How did you find these physicians? In most cases, I relied on my primary physician to identify who she knows in the community would be the the best match for me for what I was trying to do. So I relied very heavily on the primary physician. I did not use any rating services, uh, and and what I learned also and what I was told is probably the best mechanism to use is not the computer, but word of mouth. And just ask people if they have ideas as to who they know who's good and who's bad. Uh, one person who's given me some very good recommendations is the, the woman who is my physical trainer. She sees a lot of people. She has an incredible network, and she understands the human body for obvious reasons. So she can come up with suggestions for you should try him or try her, and see what you're trying to do. So what I have heard from a lot of doctors is that the most efficient way to get to the best doctor is to try to find a word-of-mouth recommendation, someone who uses X for their eyes or for their skin or for whatever, and they found that they're very effective. Did you look at, for example, the statistics for hospitals? Sometimes it's possible to find out what the error rates or the number of complications, uh, infections, et cetera, for hospitals are. And that certainly can give you an idea of what kind of conditions you could expect at a facility. Yeah, I, in fact, I think that's a very important thing to do. Is to, And within the Washington, D.C. area where I live, we have some incredibly good hospitals. So you can feel pretty confident, although it was one of those incredibly good hospitals that misdiagnosed me, so that's interesting. But their statistics were pretty good. Uh, but they have, they, you have stronger and weaker hospitals 
And if you have the option of picking your hospital, that makes a lot of sense to go look and see which ones, particularly it changes, you know, in terms of what you're looking at, if it's pulmonology or cardio or uh, gynecology, you know, the ratings are different from hospital to hospital within the hospital. So that's a very useful thing just to give you confidence that you're going to be treated well. One other thing that I noticed is a, that I put in the book as a tip is if you go into the waiting room, just watch the, the staff of the doctor and how they interact with each other. And so you may be busy reading your iPhone, but if you're smart, you'll be watching people come in and go out and you watch them talk to each other. And if they're kind of not communicating well or there's a tension in the air, you know that's not a healthy doctor's office. If they're joking and having fun and they're interacting and they're supporting each other and they are just a well-oiled little machine and they get along nicely, then you can feel much more confident that you found the right place. And I did see and you know, I saw a lot of doctors' waiting rooms, and I saw significant differences from one to another. And I tended, I did actually, there's, in two cases, I left that doctor's care and I found an alternative because I wasn't really comfortable with their operation. Now, there is a distinction between someone who is personable and has good interpersonal skills and someone who is medically competent, and they're not always the same. You can have physicians who are very good at what they do, uh, but they're not particularly nice. They're not particularly likable, and by the same token, you can have physicians who seem very nice and seem very pleasant and treat their staff well, but they're not particularly competent. You're absolutely right, and I have I can think right immediately of two doctors who are definitely in that first case where they get awards for best doctor in their field in Washington, D.C. every year, and they have horrible interpersonal relation skills, but they're very competent, and I would never walk away from them. I mean, they are. I'm getting what I want. I'm getting very high-quality support and good medical care, but they also have a good staff, and they or they have a nurse that who would then interpret what what's going on. So I do agree that what cares is the competence and the capability of the doctor. That comes first. Uh, but you also want to find someone who is willing to work with you. And if they if they are, I am worried about an extremely competent doctor who doesn't want to talk to you, and says it's my job. I diagnose. I'll solve it, and I don't need to hear anything from you because your body is too complicated, and if your body will tell you things, and they should be listening to what you're telling them your body is saying. And often a good doctor will pick up on that immediately and say, well, tell me again exactly what was that that you were experiencing and why are you – you're feeling worried about this and I'm not, so why is that going on? If you can get that conversation with a doctor, you're in pretty good shape. What three – tips and suggestions would you share with our listeners that they can take away that they can get a better handle on how to get the right diagnosis? Well, I think the first thing is engage with your doctor as a partner and do what you can to make his life easier and allow, you know, more efficient treatment. Uh, The second thing is Focus on your symptoms and don't diagnose yourself. You know, let the doctor do the work and help him do that work. And I think it's really important. And 
I would also say be prepared, uh, have a list of your medications, have a list of questions, do your homework before you see your doctor, knowing what time, time constraints they have, and make his life and your life a lot easier, and, and that will be a lot more productive. And are there any particular resources other than your book that you would recommend for people who want to get a better understanding of these issues? Um, and I think you also mentioned uh, before we started that you have been writing some articles in your website on how people can deal with the COVID-19 situation. Yes, I, I, I write a monthly blog uh, called The Analytic Insider, and I just wrote another article today where I'll be posting in a couple of days. As we look at the COVID-19 uh, crisis, you know, I'm speculating that we may soon run into a situation where we have two classes of people. I call them the people with immunity and the antibodies, the munis, and then the people who have yet to get the disease, and I call them the, the novids. And what you're going to run into, I think, within a couple of months is a, a, a hybrid society that the, the munis can do a lot of things and they're not going to infect anybody. And they're going to be and then the COVIDs have to be worried about everybody else around them who is still not infected. You could have a classroom where half of the students are in the class because they're munis and then the other half of the class is still at home because they're novids. And suddenly life gets a lot more complicated. So I, I write columns like that. The one I wrote before that on was how do you have an engaged discussion with people who and not have it become difficult? You know, what is it in terms of you can understand where they're coming from and their tricks of the trade for having a conversation and not having a you know, fall into a screaming match? So the, where can they find these articles, Randy? That that website is www.globalitica.com. It's G-L-O-B-A-L-Y-T-I-C-A. We kind of, if you've, if you've ever heard of Oxford Analytica, we kind of were spinning off of that same concept. So it's globalitica.com, and you'll find my Analyst Insider there. You'll also find, I think, two books uh, that are really directly relevant to what I was putting in my doctor's book was The Critical Thinking for Strategic Intelligence. We're about to come out with a third edition of that in September. But that has a lot of how to think critically, basic thinking skills, which are very easily adaptable to how you deal with the medical profession. And then the structured techniques book that I have, it's got 66 techniques of which I would say five or 10 are directly relevant to the medical profession in where you challenge your assumptions, generate multiple hypotheses, look for inconsistent data, uh, understand what the key drivers are of a situation. And they're tools that are pretty easy to follow, somewhat intuitive, that I describe. And actually, in the in the how to get the right diagnosis, I have an appendix in the back that actually tells you in two or three pages how to use the technique and how to, in, in particularly in engaging with the doctor or the hospital or something like that. Randy, thank you for joining us from Great Falls, Virginia. Well, it's been a pleasure to have this conversation, and I hope that People will get their hands on the book and use it very uh, aggressively. There are a lot of tips that I think work well, and there are a lot of people, particularly in the, the forgotten 5%, who are really frustrated that they can't get the medical system to work for them. I'm hoping that I can give them some keys to unlock that problem. And to our audience, you have been listening to Randy 
Fursman, who is author of How to Get the Right Diagnosis, 16 Tips for Navigating the Medical System, who discussed the questions to ask your doctor if you don't want to die. To propose a guest for the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.